Welcome to The Backstory with Dr. Ricky Singh. This podcast is focused on bringing you the latest research-based information about dramatically improving health, well-being, and quality of life. And here's your host, Dr. Ricky Singh. Medical marijuana is currently legal in 33 states, however, still illegal at the federal level. About 85% of Americans support legalizing medical marijuana, and it is estimated that at least several million Americans currently use it. My guest today has treated thousands of patients suffering from a wide variety of conditions with medical marijuana and cannabis products. So please welcome Dr. Josh Weaver. So Dr. Weaver, you're a physician and an assistant professor of neurology at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medical Center. Tell me, tell our listeners, how and when did you first get interested in medical cannabis? Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me, Dr. Singh. really appreciate being on this podcast. It's kind of an interesting story. I sort of fell into it. A colleague of mine was providing medical marijuana to patients. I didn't know much about it. I actually took over her role. She left the practice, and there was no one in our department doing it. And I felt like it was a need. And I began to see that a lot of patients really were benefiting from it. And so I got credentialed, took the test, was able to, to prescribe it, and I've been learning as I go. Uh, and it's actually been a really great experience. A lot of people have shown benefit from it. Yeah, I think, you know, when it first came to the market as a treatment for our patients, we all were kind of, you know, confused. Is this something we should use? It was certainly stigmatized. And I think the more we use it, the more we study it and we see the outcomes in our patients. We're learning more and more about this treatment strategy. Absolutely. It's it's actually got a really fascinating history because it actually was part of the United States pharmacopoeia. Um, you, doctors could prescribe this back in the early 1900s, all the way up, I think, to the mid-1940s. And then due to prohibition and other, other sort of legal issues, it sort of fell out of practice. And it's only more recently we're starting to realize that it actually can be a really great medication, you know. Well, I'm glad it has made a resurgence because we certainly see the benefit in the patients that we treat, especially in the spine center. So medical marijuana is a plant that contains more than 100 different chemicals called cannabinoids. Uh, so THC, which stands for tetrahydrocannabinol, is the chemical, yeah. right, it's a mouthful, right? It's, it's the chemical that causes that high that goes along with medical consumption or marijuana consumption. While CBD, which is cannabidiol, has little or no effect THC. So it's confusing to me, THC, CBD. Can you kind of clarify what all these acronyms mean and what they actually do? Yeah, it's a little bit of, of alphabet soup. It's actually even more complicated. There's, there's like you mentioned, about 100 different cannabinoids that are in marijuana. Those two, THC and CBD, are the more active cannabinoids. So those are the ones that are actually doing anything in the body that we know of, although probably the other 98 are probably doing something. We actually have a system in our body called the endocannabinoid system. So we actually, uh, through various plants, can actually ingest certain cannabinoids and it goes into our system and we have receptors specifically for them. Uh, medical marijuana, again, uses those those receptors. Now, there are differences between medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. The big, I mean, they're, they're both marijuana. They both have THC and CBD. But the biggest difference, um, well, there's two big differences. One, medical marijuana has differing amounts of CBD and THC and tends to have less THC on average than recreational marijuana. So recreational marijuana is there generally to get people high, right? So it has a lot of a lot more THC in it. The other big difference is that you don't really know where your medical marijuana or where your recreational marijuana is being sourced, right? You don't know who's growing it, what they're using it. It could have pesticides in it. You have no idea if it's laced with other drugs. So there's a lot of unknown about the recreational marijuana, whereas medical marijuana is FDA regulated. And that's really important. So even though 
recreational marijuana is legal in some states. Mm-hmm. It's still a street drug, quote unquote, unlike medical marijuana, which does have some regulations. Correct. And I think recreational marijuana, you know, in certain states, it is regulated in the sense that they know how much is being sold and, you know, there's someone watching it. But in terms of dosing it and and uh, changing the amounts of CBD and THC, that's not as regulated as medical marijuana for medicinal purposes. So let, let's talk a little bit more about that THC and CBD. So you mentioned that in recreational marijuana, there's more THC than there is in medical, but that's not what we really use mostly for in medicine. We like the CBD portion, at least I do in in pain management. So tell us a little bit more about CBD and how that plays a role into the medical cannabis. Sure. So THC basically goes to receptors primarily in the brain, CB1 receptors. CBD, the non-psychoactive one, the one that doesn't get you high, basically works on CB2 receptors. And those are found in the immune system, in the gut, as well as somewhat in the brain. They both do work in different ways. Uh, CBD has a lot of anti-inflammatory properties, which can be really good for pain. And it, it has other properties for nerve and muscle relaxation, so that can be really helpful. THC actually acts more like an opiate in the sense that it does provide pain relief, but the problem is is that you also get high, you know? And so that's why we try to balance those two things out. In my personal opinion, I think that the combination of THC and CBD are important. CBD alone, I don't think is quite as efficacious for pain control than having at least a little bit of THC. I find CBD over the counter. You go to the pharmacy or the supplement store, and you can buy a CBD tincture or an oil. Is that FDA regulated as well? So that's actually a big, big problem, right? CBD, which can be really helpful, pure CBD, 100% CBD is actually sold over the counter. It's not FDA regulated for the most part. And the problem there is you never really know what you're getting. There's actually been studies that have analyzed products that are, that are promoted as CBD products, and sometimes they barely have any CBD in them at all, right? So you have to be really careful in terms of what you're buying. You have to make sure you know where you're getting it and that it's from a legitimate source. There is actually one medication called Epidiolex, which is a CBD-only product that's FDA-approved, and they do use that for certain pediatric seizures, uh, seizure syndromes um, called Gervais and Lennox-Gastaut, and that's actually been approved, FDA-approved for that. So there is at least some FDA-regulated CBD product, but the vast majority you're going to find over the counter is not. Gotcha. That's, that's really helpful. You know, patients come in all the time asking for and showing you pictures of different CBD products. And just like you said, I have no way of quality controlling those items and saying what's better and what's not. Exactly. So as a neurologist and you're one of the co-directors of the Wall Cornell Center for Comprehensive Spine Care, you know, you kind of mentioned how medical cannabis and that practice kind of fell into your lap as there was a gap in care. So what is your experience of the patients that you see in the spine center with chronic pain? Who is this beneficial for and what are the outcomes that you've witnessed? Yeah, it's a great question. And a big problem that we're, it's going to be a common theme here is that we don't have a lot of data on medical marijuana in terms of the outcomes. And the biggest reason for that is that it's, it's not federally approved, right? So we can't get federal funding to do big studies. So there are a handful of small studies that we have for medical marijuana. We do know that it's efficacious to some degree in a lot of different conditions, particularly for chronic pain, but we just don't know the exact dosing. We don't know exactly how to give it, what to look out for, risks, that sort of thing, long-term risks. We just don't know at this point. So there's a big unknown with it. But my experience has been 
for people who have refractory pain, they've tried a bunch of medications, nothing is working, and you know they're, they're on five different pain medications, and they're still functionally really debilitated. Medical marijuana tends to be a good adjunct to help reduce that pain and give them a little bit more functionality back. You know, medical marijuana and marijuana in general, it's tough to bring that up with your physician. There's stigma associated with taking what was once an illicit drug and patients with chronic pain might not be comfortable talking about it. What have you witnessed and what would you say to the listeners on, you know, talk about this with your doctor. It's a very durable and reliable treatment. There is a lot of stigma and I don't blame people for being reluctant, you know, to, to bring this up with their doctors, but I do think it's really important. I try to frame it as we have so many medications that are originally from plants, even now, even aspirin. It used to be from willow bark. We have all sorts of drugs that are out there and, and uh, pharmaceutical products that were originally from nature, you know. And this, to me, is essentially like any of those drugs. And so that's how I try to frame it. There really shouldn't be stigma associated with it, it's particularly for medicinal marijuana, where you're altering the amount of psychoactive properties that are in it. We're, we're using it. We're dosing it properly. We can treat it just like any other medication. So that's how I try to frame it. What do you say to those folks who you know don't smoke cigarettes and are uncomfortable with the whole idea of smoking medical marijuana? Are there different ways that they can take it? And how does that happen, especially in New York? Absolutely. So... I actually tell people they probably shouldn't be smoking marijuana, even medicinal marijuana. It is an option, not not in a, like rolling a joint kind of way, but they do have in New York State, they have a vape um, that you can use, which is marijuana oil that you then heat up in the little canister and then you breathe in vaporized oil. Personally, I think the idea of breathing in vaporized oil into your lungs just probably is not good for your lungs long term. Again, the problem is we don't actually know, you know, down the road, 20 years of that, is it going to cause lung problems or not? We don't know. My guess is it might. Who knows? So I, I steer people away from the vaping, but there are tinctures that you can have. You know, you put a few drops under the tongue. It absorbs in the oral mucosa. It's a very quick uh, activation, get into the bloodstream, and it avoids, you know, digestive issues if you have problems absorbing things into the gut. They do make pills. They also make creams. So if there's a focal area of pain, you can get medical marijuana cream that has THC in it. So lots of different ways to get it into the system that I think are probably safer. Yeah, a lot of patients come in asking about topical applications, and they get, again, the -the over-the-counter CBD non-regulated versions. But the medical THC plus CBD does come in a topical form as well? Yeah, and it's a relatively new thing. Again, I'm learning as I go along here. When I first started prescribing medical marijuana, it was not available. And so now it is in New York State, I think within the last year. In other states, you can also get edibles where they have like gummies, you know, where you can eat it and just chew on it. They have lozenges, actually, I forgot to mention in New York State. So there are a lot of different ways you can do it. No, it's great to have options. I know, you know, some work better for others. People want topicals or the tinctures, uh, but it's nice for these patients to have these options. You know, the biggest question that comes up in my practice and the reason I refer you patients for treatment, they're concerned about safety. Is medical marijuana safe? What are some of the risks associated with it? What are the, some, of, some of the adverse events that you've seen in your practice uh, when prescribing this treatment? Yeah, definitely. I think as far as natural products go, it's generally a safe medication. But the caveat to that is just like any medication, pharmaceutical or otherwise, it's a risk benefit thing. There are risks, you know, the benefit is pretty high, the risks are relatively low, but they are not non-existent, right? They're there. I think the biggest risks, you know, are really the side effects. So feeling high, feeling out of it, uh, weight gain can be a part of it. 
mood changes are probably the biggest thing that I would worry about in terms of worsening depression or anxiety. Some people get paranoid. You can have hallucinations. I think that can be a, a real problem for a lot of people. It often helps people sleep, but some people actually get agitated and have insomnia with it. So you have to be careful about that. The other things that are probably not as well known are that in some people, it can actually increase the heart rate or increase blood pressure. And so if you have really active, bad coronary artery disease, this is actually a contraindication to medical marijuana, so I'm careful to screen people for that. It may thin the blood a little bit, and so we don't know how much and to what degree or how safe that is. Again, we just don't know a lot about it, but we do know it does thin the blood, so it should probably be held prior to procedures. If you're already on really potent blood thinners, you may want to not take medical marijuana, and I do counsel people on that as well. So there's a lot of unknown, and clearly there's risk. We think it's low risk, but to be honest, we don't really know the full extent. No, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty vigilant in following these patients after you prescribe it. And when they come in for their follow-ups and to discuss how they've been feeling, what options do you have? You mentioned dosing before. So how much can you play with the CBD versus the THC dosing in these patients? The answer there is, again, we don't know optimal dosing, right? So like many medications that we use, we, we follow the dictum of you know, start low, go slow. And it's the same with medical marijuana. So if you have the sublingual tincture, you're going to start with one drop, and then you're going to increase to two drops, and then increase to three drops. In general, the range in terms of milligrams for the optimal dosings for pain seems to be anywhere from five milligrams to 25 milligrams, although there are people who go higher and some people who don't need even that much, you know, so that's just a range. And actually, the, the pharmacists at the dispensary are really quite good at helping people titrate these doses. It doesn't all fall on the doctor. Um, the pharmacists are actually really great at this. So you, you touched on a point that I want to go into a little bit further. In the world of spine and pain management, you know, we have, we have patients on chronic opioids. Uh, you know, we try our best to wean them off this. And in our practice, especially at Walk Cornell, we don't have a great opioid clinic. But medical marijuana and medical cannabis has been shown, at least anecdotally, to be effective in getting some of these patients off of these drugs. You know, I send you a lot of patients to help me treat these patients in a multidisciplinary fashion. What have you noticed in your experience on medical cannabis replacing opioids in chronic pain patients? Yeah, so actually it is one of the indications to prescribe medical marijuana for New York State is actually if there's a patient who has opioid dependence, this is one of the ways we can try to reduce the dose of opioids. And I actually have been successful in a few patients getting them off opiates entirely and just supporting them with medical marijuana and other pain medications, which I think is great. What's, what's that process look like? If, I, if a new patient comes to you who's been on opioids for a few years... How does that actually happen with you? Slowly. <laughs> so look, it takes time. A lot of people are afraid uh, when they have chronic pain and it's sort of well controlled with opiates, but they really want to come off the opiates. They're afraid of doing it. You know, So we first start the marijuana. We don't make any major changes. We get up to a good dose where they start to feel pretty good in, in terms of pain control. And then we slowly, slowly start to wean down on the opioid dose. So they shouldn't um, be afraid. They shouldn't be afraid of a cold turkey approach and stopping the opioids, which could have other ramifications. Anyway. Exactly. Right. If you, if you stop any of these types of medications, cold turkey, it actually could cause withdrawal symptoms. And you have to be careful about that. You know, what, what about this patient population of the elder adult, you know, we, we stop saying old people, geriatric population, but you know, patients who are 60, 70 years of age who probably have other comorbidities. They might have kidney issues. They might be on uh, cardiac medications for various conditions and they can't take an anti-inflammatory. 
They can't take a Motrin, a Leave, or an Advil. And they also might have this stigma associated with, you know, I'm 75 years old. Should I be taking medical marijuana? Do you have these patients in your practice? And what do you say to them? How do you counsel them? I absolutely have these patients. In fact, they're probably the majority of my patients because unfortunately, a lot of elderly patients have more reasons to have chronic pain, you know, with degenerative changes in their in their spine, for instance. And it is harder because a lot of them do have more cardiac comorbidities or they have lung problems and they really can't take certain forms of, of medical marijuana. But also, drug-drug interactions can occur, and that's something I didn't touch on before as a possible side effect. You know, marijuana is uh, metabolized through the liver, through an enzyme in the liver, and um, certain other medications may influence that enzyme, and that can change everything about how much THC or CBD you're actually getting. I worry about the cardiac side effects, so you you have to be extra careful and extra vigilant in those cases. What about addiction? Is medical marijuana addicting to the patient? So marijuana potentially is addictive, yes. It has a lower addiction potential, most likely, than compared to other things such as alcohol or opiates. However, there is the potential to be uh, addicted to marijuana. Again, it's not as high of a risk, but there's certainly marijuana use disorder where people probably overly use marijuana, and then there's dependence on marijuana. Less likely or less commonly, there's addiction where you you can't stop the marijuana and it starts to interfere with your life. So it is possible. Now, the problem is medical marijuana, we don't know. Uh, probably even less addictive because if you're taking high CBD, low THC concentrations, you're probably not at a high of a risk of addiction. So I worry less about that, but I do counsel patients about it. And and that goes into, can patients drive a motor vehicle after taking medical marijuana? Can they go to work? Can they go to school and function? What do you, you counsel your patients on that? Yeah, so that's a big part of what I do too, which is the medical legal side of things. And you have to be really careful. So no driving when on medical marijuana. And you have to be really careful because it's just like really no driving on, on opiates. Anything that may cause altered consciousness, um, you have to be careful about. So I do counsel them about that. You know, other things are the fact that it's not federally legal. They really can't transport marijuana outside of state lines, even if you're going to another state where it's legal. So you have to be really mindful of those things, which is which is a real problem because you can take your pills, your pain pills, if you're going on vacation, but marijuana, you can't, you know, legally. And so that's that's a real issue for a lot of people. I do tell people if they're going to be on medical marijuana, they really shouldn't be in certain professions where they're taking care of other people, for instance, um, or supervising children, things like that. So, you know, there are there are caveats to when it's appropriate to take. And, and what about work related things? You know, sometimes employers do random drug screens. And if you're a patient who needs medical marijuana, what do you tell that patient? Or, or is there a letter you can provide them? How does that work? So that actually there are laws that are in place now. Once I think this was about five or six years ago, once medical marijuana became legal in New York State, laws started to be enacted exactly about this because a lot of people worried, well, maybe my employer can fire me if they if they drug test me. And so there is a law that just came into effect this year, just a couple months ago, actually, where basically employers are not allowed to fire you if you are on legal medical marijuana. There are caveats to that, however, because the, so the person can claim disability and say that you're firing me because of my, my chronic pain, which is illegal. But the caveats to that are if you have a federal job, right, if you have a job in which you supervise other people or take care of kids, and I'm assuming, I I actually don't know if this is part of it, but being in the medical profession, you know, taking care of patients. So there are roles and jobs where this does not apply. But for other jobs, you know, the employers cannot 
you know, legally fire people for this. That's, that's good to know. I know patients, you know, want to get the best care they can. And if that means getting off certain medications, um, there's certainly value add in this treatment. Walk me through the process as a patient, especially in New York, who gets referred to you for medical cannabis therapy. What actually happens? Do you hand them a bag full of marijuana or how does that actually work? Some people think that I just have it handy. Uh, no, I do not. Some people also think they're just going to go to CVS and pick up their prescription. It doesn't work that way either. So it, the process is, is involved. Someone will come into my office. First step is I review their whole situation, their comorbidities, their medications that they're on. I examine them. I decide if they're even a good fit for medical marijuana. So that's step one. But let's assume they are. I then provide them with a certificate. If they meet the criteria and there's no contraindications, then I give them a certificate that says, you know, you have one of the conditions that qualifies you for medical marijuana, which we didn't really get into, but chronic pain is just one of them. Um, there are others, including Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, cancer, HIV, AIDS, opiate use disorder. There's a, there's a lot of conditions that might qualify you. So I basically give a certificate that says, yes, you qualify. And then there are instructions for the person to apply online. This is a, another issue with medical marijuana is that it's not covered by insurance. So all of this is out of pocket, which the, it can be very cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So people have to apply. There's a fee. You know, it's New York State. You get a license in the mail. It looks like a driver's license and it's for medical marijuana. And they then take that to a dispensary. And there are multiple dispensaries all over New York State. And so you can go wherever you want within the state. So you go you go to the dispensary. There's an intake form. You talk to the pharmacist. They explain the dosing and the different products. And then you basically can choose whatever you think makes the most sense for you. Now, I do have the ability to restrict certain people. So I can say you can only do high CBD you know, low THC and that's it. Or you can only do sublingual tincture and that's it. I generally don't restrict most people um, unless there's there's a good reason to do so. Um, but again, it is a it is a process, you know, to get it all ready. So the ability for you to provide a certificate to the patient, I mean, I can't do that. So what does that involve for you to be able to provide that? Right. So New York State has a credentialing process, essentially. So you have to Watch a lot of videos, take quizzes, you know, they, they basically educate you on the science behind the medical marijuana, which actually is incredibly fascinating. Um, but they, they go through that. You have to read about the different conditions and the evidence behind medical marijuana for those conditions. So they really prep you well. And then they give you a basically a form where you're credentialed and, and then you can do it. And then you're registered in the New York State website and you're listed as one of the providers that can do this. You know, you mentioned that there isn't a lot of rigorous research in the field of medical marijuana because it's not federally legal and you're not going to get federally funding. What are you most excited about in the next five to 10 years in terms of indications, how patients can get access to it? Um, where, do you, where do you see the field going? So I already, you know, the majority of states are allowing some form of, of marijuana, right? Most of it medical marijuana. So I see probably within the next five to 10 years that it, I hope it becomes actually federally approved because once that happens, you know, the floodgates are open for research. We can finally get big funding and really get big studies and really understand what are all of the potential side effects? What are the outcomes? What are the long lasting, you know, effects uh, from marijuana? And 
what I'm really excited about is actually understanding the optimal dosing for these, you know, and, and the optimal ratios of, C, of, of CBD and THC. Because right now it's a little bit of the Wild West. We're, we're just kind of hoping for the best and playing around with the dosing. And, you know, we do what we can. Uh, but that's what I'm most excited about. You know, I find it fascinating that despite what we know about opioids, it's federally approved. It's covered by insurance. We continue to prescribe it despite all the side effects and the adverse events. Yet here we have a product, metal cannabis, that has relatively few side effects from what you've seen, yet isn't covered by insurance. How are we going to change that? How are we going to move the ticker on that? You know, I think it's already moving. And I think there's momentum. I think the the more it becomes popular, the more people are asking for it, the more doctors who become credentialed and start to understand it better. I do think that that is going to change. I can already tell even from when I when I first got credentialed to now, there's there's been a shift. I mean, I can certainly attest you have positively impacted a lot of my patients' lives who have been stuck in chronic pain despite my interventions and therapies and things like that. You know, I know medical marijuana is a divisive subject, and many clinicians have a, have a stigma. They won't prescribe it. They refuse to prescribe it. But I think it's very important that doctors such as yourself are researching it and prescribing it in a safe manner. You know, I really appreciate what you're sharing with us today. You've educated me, and again, you we collaborate on a lot of patient care in the Spine Center. What are some leaving remarks for our listeners about if you're interested in learning about medical marijuana or you think that's a treatment for you, what's the best way they can go about learning about it? So the best way is talk to your doctor. You know, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people in the city who do this. And, you know, talk to your doctor first. My leaving remarks would be don't be scared of asking. Okay, it's it's become more popular now. Doctors are aware of it. Ask your doctor, you know, and um, find out information. If you if it's right for you, treat it like any other medication, and I, that's the best way to think about it. And I think I think that's a great closing remark. This is a medication. It's not a recreational drug like it once used to be. It's actually a treatment that's been well thought out. You know, Doctor Weaver, thank you for sharing your thoughts on medical cannabis, on the backstory. You know, I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners will. Uh, you still seeing new patients at the Walkwinell Center for Comprehensive Spine Care? I am indeed. I'd be happy to see anybody. So we will share that contact information with the group. Again, thank you for your time out of your busy clinic schedule. We appreciate your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Backstory. Please subscribe, rate the podcast, and review The Backstory on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. And feel free to share this podcast on social media or even your own website or blog. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. To learn more about Dr. Singh and his clinical research, please follow him on social media. You can also sign up for his newsletter by going to www.rickysinghmd.com. That's R-I-C-K-Y-S-I-N-G-H-M-D dot com.